Amar Joba, and welcome to The History of Sacarvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is Episode 6, Farnavaz I, King of Iberia. It's so great to be back to the narrative, even though I enjoyed our literary break. In today's episode, we will finally come across our first mostly historical figure in Farnavaz, the first king of Iberia. This episode will be divided into two segments. We will begin with covering the actual historical content that we do know about the time of Farnavaz's rule up until his death, and then we'll cover what the Georgian chronicles, the Kartlis Schovrieba, or the life of Kartlis, says, from the mythological origin of Iberia all the way to the life of Farnavaz. The Kartlis Schovrieba is probably the best source we will have regarding what our new Iberian rulers do throughout history, but we will need to take it with a major grain of salt. As you know, most chronicles of the medieval era are not the most accurate thing. You will see why rather soon. Last time, in episode 5, we discussed the rule of the Achaemenids within Georgia and ended with Xenophon's march through the Caucasus and his experiences while he was there. And then, there was nothing. We experience a near 70-year gap in our sources up until the arrival of Alexander the Great into Asia Minor and Persia. Now, let us begin. After Xenophon made his way through the Black Sea region, several of the proto-Georgian tribes in the area, such as the Tibal and Mushki, migrated to eastern Georgia. While there, they merged with the local tribes in the area and formed what we recognize today as the Georgian people. The Greeks began calling these people the Iberoi, or as we know them, the Iberians. David Marshall Lang writes in the Georgians that the name Iberoi could possibly come from the name of the Tibal tribe, also called the Tibareni, which got mangled in translation into the word Iber. The Mushki also made their mark on the land and gave their name to the chief city of ancient Iberia, Mitzchieta. They also made their mark by introducing the Hittite pantheon to the region, which included gods such as Armazi, Lord of the Moon, and Zadin, the god of fruitfulness. Now, let us transition over to the historical point where we last left our narrative. The year is currently 331 BC. Alexander's victory over the Persians has caused all previously existing political structures throughout Asia Minor to collapse. Many different satraps not directly under Alexander's control experienced a breath of freedom and independence. What was then called Iberia was not one of these, and furthermore, our sources differ wildly on whom he placed in charge of the region. The Kartlis Chovrieba states that he placed a blood relative by the name of Azon as king of Iberia. The Armenian sources state that he placed Mithridates, father of Mithridates I, king of Pontus, as the satrap of Iberia, who later came to conflict with the Caucasian Albanians. And there is also another source that says that instead of having Greeks rule, it was the Georgians from Clargeti and Tal regions who instead came, took over, and controlled central Iberia. I absolutely love this. We finally have some sources, and they can't even agree on what they want to make fact. I guess this is punishment for complaining about a lack of sources. In contrast to the apparently controversial region of Iberia, the Macedonians did manage to install the preferred ruler in the Caucasus. If we go by the Kartlis Chorieba, Azon was a ruler of Mitzchieta in this time period. However, 
In the early 3rd century BC, the ruling dynasty of the cities of Armazi and Mithischieta established Farnes' rule and power over the other Iberian chiefs. This man was considered a descendant from the progenitor of the Georgians and the founder of Mithischieta, Mithischietos, and the grandson of Noah, Targamos. Yes, that Noah from the Old Testament. We will soon discuss Farnabas' origins and his overthrow of Azon, as this piece of information tends to be seen more mythical than fact. This man also expelled the Macedonians from the region of Georgia, leaving him as the most powerful ruler in Transcaucasia. His name is Farnabas, the first Georgian king of Iberia. His efforts to rule over Georgia brought it several chiefdoms under his rule, and he even brought the land of King Aedes, Colchis Egerisi, under his control as a vassal, thus making the eastern Georgians the most powerful state in the region. It's quite funny, because Egerisi is much older than Kartli, but due to a series of unfortunate events and its proximity to the sea, Egerisi had been unable to retain its independence from neither the Achaemenids, Hellenic Pontus, Rome, nor Byzantium, all while Kartli enjoyed growth, expansion, and near-perfect independence. King Farnabas, for his part, played his hand well by keeping the Seleucids as his suzerain, who permitted Iberian independence as long as he paid them their dues. He also enjoyed an almost biblically long reign of 65 years. Beyond that 65-year reign is where we run into the show's perpetual companion, missing, unreliable, and or contradictory sources. The Katlis Chovrieba does not mention the specific time period when Farnabas ruled, how he became king, or when King Antiochus adopted him as a son. For that matter, we also don't know which King Antiochus this was supposed to be, since there are a few people named that. As for what we do know regarding Farnabas' life and reign, many scholars like to say that he ruled from 299 to 234 BC. Others say that he ruled from 284 to 219 BC, which would put Farnabas' rule during the time of the co-kingship between Seleucus I Nicator and Antiochus I Soter. I've done my due diligence by explaining the nuance behind it, so I'm leaving it up to you to keep that in mind. Most sources say 299 to 234 BC, so to make things easy, we're calling that the period of his rule. So difficult, I know. Blame the sources. Farnabas was a rather busy man during his 65 years on the throne. The Katli Sohovrieba credits him with promoting literacy in the region and even creating the Georgian language and script, although some sources do say that this was probably a form of Aramaic instead of an early version of the Georgian script we see today. He also set the standard for the Georgian social hierarchy with the royal family at top, followed by the Eristavebi, or military nobility, the pagan priesthood, the yeomen, and at the bottom, slaves. He also consolidated all the separate tribes into a larger, singular ethnic identity. In other words, he is the man who brought the Georgians together through standardization of language and social organization. He is also credited with introducing a military administrative organization into his kingdom, which marks the beginning of a feudal system. To help run his system, he appointed Eristavebi, or dukes, to each Sairistavo, duchy, inside his kingdom. He had seven to eight Sairistavo, depending on the sources. Sometimes the eighth one is a vassal state, or a state under his direct control. Want to guess which one? Why yes, it is Kolkis Igrisi. The Eristavi of this region is a man named Kuji of Kolkis, 
We'll get more into Kuji and the relationship he shared with Farnavaz, but the important thing right now is that Kuji ruled over Colchis, helped Farnavaz fight the Greeks, and then married Farnavaz's sister. Kartli, the main territory which held the capital city of Mitischieta within it, was not considered a Sayeri Stavo, but was instead called a Saspaspeto and was under the purview of a Spaspeti, or a governor general slash high constable that was of the royal blood and was subordinate only to the king. This has caused quite a lot of confusion later in history as it creates the impression of a diarchy in Iberia. Now, speaking of government, what did the government of Farnavaz look like? Well, it's hard to say, but it was more than likely based on the political patterns already present in Iberia, as that is the closest form of government that the Georgians would recognize. Farnavaz was half Iranian himself, so he would naturally have modeled it after the government of his Persian forebears. In terms of religion, Farnavaz erected a statue of the moon god Armaz on Kartli, which was then renamed to Armazi, and gave the Georgians a unified religion that didn't force them to drop prior beliefs. That's pretty much all we know. Farnavaz himself reflects the multi-ethnic nature of his kingdom, and being half Iranian as previously mentioned, married a Zurzuk, which could be a Chechen or a Setian woman, and give his daughter in marriage to an Assetian. These alliances would bring only joy for future Iberian kings, as they could use their influence on the nomads and highlanders, there can only be one, who resided north of the Caucasus and could choose to either bar them or let them through the Dario Gorge to attack their neighbors. Finally, as we mentioned, Farnavaz's reign finished in 234 BC and he was succeeded by his son Saurmag. Saramak's story will be for another time, so let's talk about the origins of Georgia and Farnavaz's rise to power. Hello, this is J.P. Bristow, host of the Russian Empire History Podcast, a podcast that takes off from the thesis that Russia took as much from the steppe, Central Asia and the Caucasus as it did from Europe. I'm sure all of you listening to the history of Sakatvila, Georgia, know that eventually Georgia is going to end up spending quite a bit of time as part of the Russian Empire, giving Russia some of its finest generals and artists, not to mention its wines and outstanding cuisine. If you'd like to know more about what is going on around Georgia and the context for its development, Please come and join us at the Russian Empire History Podcast. It's the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire, not just the Russians. Gamarjoba, everyone. It's Brendan here, and thank you for listening to the history of Sakartvelo, Georgia. It's a pleasure having you tune into our show, and I'd like to extend an invitation to follow us on social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, if you can, please leave a review on iTunes as it'll help our show grow. If you don't feel like doing any of that, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about it in person or on social media. All these things help the show grow and allow us to help spread the word about Georgia. Now, back to the show. The legend of the founding of Georgia begins with Targamos the descendant of the biblical Noah and ultimate ancestor of the Armenians, Kartvels, and all other Caucasian peoples. 
The story goes that after the fall of the Tower of Babel, which in the Bible caused all the languages of the world to diverge from each other, Targamos and his tribe settled down in the lands of Ararat and Masis, which no man could reach. This makes no sense since he reached it, but I digress. This land had several boundaries, the Caspian Sea to the east, the Black Sea to the west, and mountains to the north and south. Out of all of Targamos' sons, eight were powerful and glorious heroes named Haik, Kartlos, Bardos, Movakan, Lek, Heros, Kafkas, and Egros. They are the ancestors of all the Caucasian peoples today. However, among all the brothers, the strongest was Haik. No one who ever lived was equal to him in bodily constitution, power, or martial prowess. As time wore on, all the children throughout the land that Targamos fathered in his 600 years of life began to run out of room, so Targamos decided to divide the country and tribe between his sons. To Hike, the firstborn and most powerful, he gifted the best half of the country and the best of the tribe, and to the other seven he gifted equal shares of the other half. Hike took his tribe and settled down to the area we know as Armenia today. Something tells me that an Armenian wrote this. To Kartlos, he gifted the land we know today as Kartli. Haik ruled over his brothers, but was himself subject to the biblical king Nimrod, who was king of the whole world. No longer wishing to be ruled by Nimrod, Haik banded together with his brothers and fought against Nimrod. They freed themselves from his rule after a violent battle where they destroyed 60 of Nimrod's heroes and their armies. Haik, as a leader, challenged Nimrod to a duel and shot an arrow through his chest. Nimrod fell, and Hike proclaimed himself the only king over his brothers and their domains. But our story is not about Hike, but instead about Kartlos. Kartlos moved to his land and named it and a mountain fortress after himself. There, on the mountain, he erected a statue to the moon god Armaz and built the Samshvilde and Hunani fortresses. He lived a long life, and his descendants spread across the land. Among his sons, Metisgetos excelled above them all. When Kartlos died, he was buried on top of Mount Kartli, and Kartlos's unnamed widow built Dedatsihe and Bostankalaki, which is now known as the city of Rustavi. In classic Gavokin fashion, she divided the land among her five sons. To Metisgetos, our new chieftain, she gave the land of Kartlos, where he built and named the city after himself, Metisgeta. From there, he expanded his control to the lands which were formed Tbilisi in the 5th century AD. The borders of his kingdom eventually stretched to the banks of the Aragvi River and Speri River. Mitisgetos ruled over his four brothers, and they remained submissive to him. He named as his heir his son Uplos, who stayed in Mitisgeta after the death of his father and built the cities of Urbnisi, Uplisige, and Kaspi, all of which are now in Chirakartli. For a long period of time, the tribes ascending from Targamos lived in harmony. Then everything changed when the sons of Mitisgetos attacked. Uplos had lost the power he retained over his brothers, and feuds began to materialize between the kin, each in turn helping and attacking each other as befitted them. At times, they had peace. At other times, discord and feuds arose. Only the Mamasaklisis, or village father, of Metisgeta could maintain a ceasefire between the bickering factions, and yes, Mama in Georgian is father. There's another Georgian word for you to learn, buckaroos. 
The Mamasachlisis and Mitischieta was known to be the peacemaker among all the hostile tribes, and in matters relating to the Cartlosids, was judge. Because Mitischieta towered above all the other cities in Cartli, it was known as the capital. However, because of these feuds, the true Christian faith had been forgotten by the descendants of Noah, and they began worshipping the sun, moon, and five stars. Around this time, the events from episode 3 to 5 occur, so I'm skipping that recap. Now, the moment you have all been waiting for. We come to the arrival of Alexander the Great. This is the perfect time to remind you that the historical accuracy in the Cartlis Jovrieba is not the best, especially concerning this segment with Alexander. This whole segment involving Alexander is most likely mythical. If you want more information about Alexander that's factual, please head over to the Hellenistic Age podcast after this episode. They do great work, and I'm a huge fan myself. Alexander, according to the Georgians, managed to conquer the four ends of the world, and came to Kartli to complete his expansion. Upon his arrival, he observed that the Georgian pagan faith was the most abominable compared to all the other people he has met, since the Georgians ignored blood relationships and ate every living thing. I would say more about this, but the authors of the Kartlis Chovrieba state that it would be indecent to keep learning about the pagans, so all information about pre-Alexandrian religion is cut off there. Alexander camped along the Mitkvadi River and was in complete astonishment at the behavior of the Kipchaks and the Boonturks. He decided that they must be destroyed, but ran into difficulties as their fortresses proved too strong and their towns too powerful. He came into Shirakartli and came upon the strong city fortresses of Uplisihe, Kaspi, Urbnisi, Rustavi, and the great city of Mitischieta. In all these cities, Alexander faced a tough, warlike people, ready to fight to the end. He divided his forces and sent them forth to conquer, while he remained at Mitischieta. For six months he laid siege to and eventually conquered all these cities, but soon the Boonturks turned treasonous, and Alexander laid siege to and fought them for eleven months. The Boonturks, however, did not want to be destroyed by the Macedonian conqueror's army, and in the middle of the night fled the city through a hidden mountain pass, leaving only the empty town for Alexander. During this whole period, Alexander managed to conquer the Kartli region and destroyed any tribes who were not from the local area, leaving only those descended from Kartlos. As overlord of the Kartli, he placed a patrician named Azon, a kinsman of his from Macedonia, as the Aristavi of Kartli, and left with him 100,000 Macedonian troops. Alexander told Azon to pretend like he worshipped the Georgian gods of the sun, moon, and five stars, but to steer the people to serve God in this fashion. And here I will say my favorite quote from the Kartli Sehovrieba so far. Alexander ordered Azon to stick to worshipping the sun and the moon and five stars so that everybody would serve God, the invisible creator of everything, because there was no prophet at the time, a teacher of the true faith who could teach and expose the heathens. Alexander himself invented this faith. During his reign, he gave his faith to the whole world. After that, Alexander left. I should explain here that the authors of the Kartlis Chovrieba were monks and were anachronistically attributing a religion that did not exist yet to Alexander the Great just because they were huge Alexander fanboys. Azan, upon taking power within Mitzchieta, raised the walls to the ground but left four fortresses along the borders of Kartli. One was on the Armazi, one on the edge of the town of Armazi, one on the mountain that rises over Mitzchieta, and one was to the west of Mitzchieta on the Mitkvari River. 
Placing his troops at these fortresses, he raised the walls of all the towns within Kartli and occupied the frontiers of Kartli. He conquered Kolkisegrisi and made tributaries of the Ossetians, Leks, and Khazars. Azan broke away from Alexander's wish to profess the true faith to the Georgians soon after Alexander's death and began worshipping idols. He created two idols of silver, that of Gatsi and Game, who, according to Georgi Melikishvili, may have been the god of all mysteries. But we honestly don't know much about them. He became subservient to Byzantios, king of the Greeks, who also may have just been Mithridates I of Pontus or Cassander, or a mythical founder of the city of Byzantium. Once again, we don't know. Azan was not a well-loved ruler, and is described to be an ill-tempered, bloodthirsty man. He issued a decree which ordered his army to execute every Georgian on whom they found any weapons. His soldiers listened and carried this out effectively. The Macedonian soldiers looked for any Georgian men that were well-built and of a mature age and immediately executed them. This brought great sorrow on the denizens of Kartli, but Azan's bloodthirst did not end there. When the death of Georgians began to bore him, he proceeded to torment and kill his own Macedonian soldiers for his pleasure. Who would the Lord send to remove this tyrant from power and bring peace to the land? Why, Farnavaz, of course. Farnavaz was born and grew up at Mitischieta, Kartlian by birth. He was a kinsman of Uplos, son of Mitischietos, and the nephew of the Mamasachlisi of Mitischieta, Samar. His mother was a Persian from Isfahan. See how having the origin story of the region is helpful? When Alexander arrived in Kartli, Samar and Farnavaz's father were killed, causing Farnavaz's mother to flee with him and his sisters to the mountains of the Caucasus when he was three years old. Over the years, he grew up to be a clever and virtuous man, excellent horseman, and a skillful hunter. Despite all his skills, cleverness, and virtuousness, he was asked by his mother to hide his virtues, lest the bloodthirsty Azon find him and execute him for being a threat to his power. Farnavaz soon returned to Mitischieta upon reaching adulthood, and while he was hunting in the hills and valleys of the region, he had a chance encounter with Azon. Azon saw the wonderful hunting skills of Farnavaz and grew rather fond of him. Returning home, he told his mother of the encounter, and she implored him to not give Azon any cause to kill him. Her fear began to consume her until she beseeched Farnavaz to escape from Mitischieta and go with her to Isfahan to save himself from Azon. And off they went to Isfahan. This tore at Farnavaz's heart, because he did not want to leave the land he knew and grew up in, but he was so afraid of what Azan would do to him that he had no choice. However, one night, Farnavaz had a dream. He awoke in an abandoned house, from which he was unable to leave. Soon enough, a sunbeam came through the window, embraced him in its light and warmth lifted him up. He found himself in a field and saw the sun, which hung low. He reached out and wiped the dew off the sun's face and anointed himself with it. Farnavaz awoke and immediately realized the meaning of his dream. He was meant to go to Isfahan, as he would find his fortune on the way there. That same day, as his family prepared for travel, he went out hunting. And as he circled a herd of deer, they fled through the gorges of Tbilisi. He followed the deer and loosed an arrow, striking one. It ran for a bit before falling at the foot of a rock. As he approached the deer, he noticed the light of day waning and made camp there. However, it soon began to rain, and Farnavaz noticed that at the foot of the rock there was a cave. He entered it to seek shelter and noticed that the cave was blocked with ancient masonry. 
he used the butt of an axe to open the door and found the hoard of silver, gold, and other priceless treasures. Joy filled Farnabas's heart, and at that moment he recalled his dream and decided he didn't need to flee his homeland. He covered the entrance, ran back home, and told his mother and two sisters about his discovery. That night, the four of them set out with donkeys carrying different vessels for storage. They took part of the treasure and buried it in a more convenient place near their home, and repeated this until all the treasure was hidden. Farnabas, using this newfound opportunity, sent one of his slaves to meet with Kuji of Kolkis Egrisi, and informed Kuji of his name, lineage, and newfound wealth. The message stated that if they came together as brothers and used the treasure, they could rise against Azon. Kuji rejoiced at these words, and immediately invited Farnavas to come to Egrisi with all of his treasures in order to pay for the raising of an army that would finally free the oppressed Georgians and Macedonians. Farnavas, along with his mother and sisters, headed to Egrisi, treasure in tow. Upon his arrival, Kuji immediately paid tribute to Farnavas in honor of his ancestors, the founders and rulers of the Kartlosids. Accepting his role as suzerain over Kuji, they then met with the Ascetians and Lex, who joined Farnavaz's army. Soon enough, many people from across Georgia came to join Farnavaz. Azon soon took note and gathered his own troops to face this insurrectionist. Not all the Macedonian soldiers were happy with Azon, and soon enough, a thousand of these troops broke away and joined Farnavaz, as they had had enough of his cruelty. Seeing this, the rest of the Georgians broke with Azon, leaving him in a paranoid state, from which he saw only enemies at all sides. He then holed himself up inside the Clargeti fortress. Farnavaz and his army arrived in Tisheta and took control of the four surrounding fortresses, as well as the rest of Kartli, leaving only Clargeti unconquered. He then sent gifts to the Seleucid kings. Which ones? We don't really know. Probably Seleucus I or Antiochus I, depending on which period of reign to go by, and promised to recognize the Seleucid supremacy over them. He asked for their assistance in repelling the remaining Greek soldiers, to which the Seleucid king happily accepted, named Farnavaz as one of his sons, sent him a crown, and then ordered for the Armenians to aid Farnavaz. Azon soon received reinforcements from Greece and went to meet this insurrectionist in battle. Farnavaz had also increased his forces and called his allies together. He appealed to Kuji and the Ossetians for aid. Soon enough, the Armenians arrived, and he and Azan's army battled near the city of Artani. This battle was great, and countless people died on both sides, but only the Georgians remained as they routed the Greeks. Many of Azan's armies were taken captive, save Azan himself, who died in the battle. Farnavaz, now having defeated Azan, took possession of Klargeti and the rest of the kingdom, and returned to Mitischieta. He owned all that was Azan's, and his wealth became boundless. To the Macedonian troops who came to his side, he gifted land and dubbed them the Aznauri. He soon married a woman of the Zurzuk tribe and was granted a son, Saurmag. He then wed a sister to the king of the Ossetians and another sister to Kuji, cementing their alliance. He appointed Kuji as the Aristavi of Egrisi, and there Kuji built the Sihegoji, or as we know it, Nokalakevi fortress. Farnavaz soon created an idol dedicated to his name in Persian, Farnavaz Armazi, and erected the statue on top of Kartli and renamed it Armazi. Having attained the throne at 27 years of age, Farnavaz ruled for 65 years over a land filled with peace and prosperity. He rebuilt all the towns and fortresses that Alexander had torn apart, and surrounded Mitischieta with strong, sturdy walls. 
The people praised Farnabaz's deeds. However, in 234 BC, Farnabaz passed from this world, and the power was then bequeathed to his son, Saurmag, about whom we will talk next time. Now, I would like to give thanks to several people in this segment. First of all, I would like to thank the Hellenistic Age podcast, because this episode contained oh so many questions regarding the Seleucid Kings, and as well as having a promo for us in our last episode. I'd like to thank both Brendan and Carrick for helping me with this project, and most importantly, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning into the show. Without your support, this wouldn't be as much fun to do. As I've mentioned before, if we're not on any streaming service, please let me know and I'll attempt to get onto it. If you do have anything you want to say, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacardello, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, or on our website at historyofsacardevelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacardevelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacardevelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Madloba da Nachfambis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacardevelo, Georgia. See you next time.